Before we start this episode, I just wanted to warn everybody that the sound quality is subpar to say the least. I... I messed up guys, I'm sorry. I forgot to click on the button that used our studio mics and instead we recorded uh, the entire episode unknowingly through my computer's in mic. Uh, or just the generic one on the computer. So it sounds like garbage. I'm sorry. I'm terrible. I never said that I was an audio engineer. I am a guy in a bedroom covered in mattresses and cushions. So this is the last smooth sounding clear audio you'll hear for the rest of the show. We'll be back to normal next week. I'm sorry about the content. You know what? The content of this one is good, but it just sounds like, like, uh, like two guys recorded it in the middle of an airport. So enjoy. It's the Just Jiu-Jitsu podcast. Please put your phone away. I did. It's very disrespectful. It was a very peppy start. Most of the time when we do these episodes, I'm talking. And whenever I talk, Crowther pulls his phone out and he just is on Pinterest or he, he does a lot. He Snapchats <laughs> <Pinterest>. a lot. <laughs> Actually, I don't even have that up on my phone. Then he, Mm, I, I, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> he is always... Well, you, you also like Tumblr a lot. You're on there when we're when I'm, doing the I'm podcast. I'm also not on Tumblr. I, don't, I, I didn't know they had an app for that. No. Well, what are you working on this week, jiu-jitsu-wise? Well, we're doing, we're doing X-Guard to outside Ashigarami. Mm-hmm. Kind of building onto the series, right? We, we started with a traditional X-Guard sweep, and then we talked about sweeping backwards. And then going now, we're going to go sweep backwards into outside Ashi. And then from there, we went to leg locks. Mm, well, oh, funny you should say leg locks. I'm not <laughs> sure if you knew this, but the topic of today's episode is leg locks. Yeah, I figured that's where you're trying to lead me to. So I just... Uh, I would never try to lead you anywhere. I so, want you to do whatever you feel is right. So I just, I just, I just bit it, you know? I figured, why not? <laughs> I'm Andrew Desimone, and this is Croyler Gracie that I'm with, and today's episode is leg locks. It's a huge umbrella to cover that covers so many different things from the fascinating history to where leg locks stand in jiu-jitsu today, their journey from their dark, mysterious past <laughs> to coming out into the light and now being a crucial part of everyone's jiu-jitsu game. Nowadays, you see leg locks on YouTube, you see them on Instagram, you re- can read articles on them. They're in every competition you watch. But there was a time where it wasn't that way, right? That's right. That's right. There was, I, I believe leg locks were invented when, was it Zeus ankle locked Hades? <laughs> Is that when it, it first I, started? Something like that, yeah. I think that happened. And yeah. then that's how Hercules was born. That's right. Um, I don't know a lot uh, about uh, Greek mythology, uh, uh, but uh, I think tapping. This is, like when they're tapping, yeah. Yes, yes. he tapped, and, and then, then Zeus, and then Hercules was born, right? And then Hercules started crying, and his tears created the oceans, right? That's pretty much it. Anyone who knows anything about mythology right now is like, shut up! That's <laughs> no, nothing like it. <laughs> Let's go into the dark past, and when I say dark past, I don't mean. Like leg locks are bad. It's just they have this. They had this like 
bad boy vibe to them for a while, didn't they? Um, That's what I think of. Sure. You can think of them as bad boy, yeah. <laughs> um, how early should we go back if we want to start talking about this? Well, I mean... It, it, I mean besides I, Greek mythology. Besides that start, right? With, yeah. yeah. We're going to skip a couple hundred years or so. Yeah. Um, no, I think, you know, we keep talking about, like, the roots, right? And and first and foremost, Jujutsu was meant to, to fight somebody out in the field, armored, and so on. And we'll go back to... We'll go back to that part of like the samurais and the Japanese fighting in the war and stuff. We'll come back to that later. If we start in Brazil, I think it'll it'll be a nice comeback later. Mm-hmm. But you know, leg locks have existed forever for a long time. They're not new. They're not you know they might be sh- you know sharper or more precise or more developed now, but but they've been around forever. You can see pictures of ankle locks in old Japanese drawings and things like that. Where The reason I want to start in Brazil is because it speaks a lot about the Brazilian culture. It speaks a lot about why the bad boy thing, right? So, so you accepted, you accepted <laughs> my idea that it was a bad for, boy. For everybody that's not in the room with the mattresses here with us, <laughs> um, I, I, I put my fingers up as in quotes. Oh. So... My grandfather looked at it as just as a form of self-defense, right? So he took it even more specific than the Japanese, where if somebody attacks me, how do I win? And one common trend with leg locks, and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what approach you take leg locks, in order to finish a leg lock, 99% of the time, you're on your back. And, and there's nothing wrong with that if you can get the ankle lock and, and finish it, right? Ankle, heel, knee bar, whatever. There's a couple exceptions where you're on top, but generally speaking, you're you're usually on your back, on your butt or on your back, and therein lies the problem. So my grandfather believed that if you, we were in a fight, and let's say you're on top and you're in a great position to where you could hit me, or choke me, or armbar me, um, why would you drop to your butt and attack a leg lock? You know. Because sure, you could be successful and get the tap, or you could miss it, and I could get up, and now you you gave up a superiorly, a more, much more dominant position for an inferior one, and that didn't make sense to him. So it wasn't that my grandfather didn't practice leg locks. In fact, if you look up old footage of my grandfather, there's there's pictures of him doing heel hooks in the gi, like you know, mm-hmm. it, it, they they were not ignored. They were just unfavored. So you... It is scary. They are scarier to do when you're learning than... It's scarier to try leg locks when you're in live rolls than it is to try a rear naked choke or a Kimura because you do feel like you have to compromise some of your safety for a little while to secure a possible submission. Right, right. So you you have a dominant position for a potential tap. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is okay, you know, if you're better than your opponent. But but if it's a fight to where you could be physically hurt, you know, in, in the street or show back to the Japanese in war and stuff, it's not, not necessarily the best strategy. It should be used as a last-case scenario. You know, um, in judo, they have a style of throws called suicide throws where you actually fall to your butt or fall to your back or fall to your side in order to get this, this takedown. While those are highly efficient, it was never meant to be the first path of attack because they're called a suicide throw because if it fails, you're done. You're done, right? 
so my grandfather took the same approach with leg locks. But anyways, so you have this small man teaching jiu-jitsu with a heavy emphasis on get to the top, control, find a submission, and submit, you know, win. And if you're in the bottom, you get to close guard, control the opponent, find a way to the top, or submit it from the bottom. That was it, right? And we did not discuss at any point during that description giving up a superior position for an inferior one. So day to day, that's not too bad. But when you have years of that, 10, 15, 20 years of doing this, and everybody is, nobody's emphasizing leg locks, they get underdeveloped. Because they're underdeveloped, they don't get much love, which means that nobody practices them, nobody does them, nobody, you know, gets any sort of affinity with them. So... So who carried the torch? Right. <laughs> so again, it wasn't that the knowledge wasn't there. It's just it wasn't practiced. It, the same thing happens with takedowns in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? So it's not that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, they don't know how to do a double leg or how to do a ponceo renege. It's a what? Uh, it's a judo throw. Okay. <laughs> you know, or tomo renege, things like that. It's simply that the emphasis isn't there, right? So... There is another guy, Luis Franca, uh, Luis Francis, sorry, who, um, and, and, and again, this is where it gets controversial because I don't know how much proof there is that he he got his black belt from Count Coma, the same guy that gave Carlos Gracie his black belt. Mm -hmm. There's a weird murky story there, and I don't know if he did or didn't. I'm assuming he did, otherwise he wouldn't have had the knowledge to pass it on. But anyways... He passes on to one of his students named Osvaldo Fada, and Fada was a um, was one of the the most famous non Gracie red belts. Um, again, from Calcoma was um, Luis Franca, and then Fada. And Fada took a different approach to jujitsu, where my grandfather and Elia Gracie wanted to teach people and they wanted to make a living off of it. They wanted to live the quote unquote jujitsu lifestyle. They teach it. They breathe it. They you know, make their living off of it and, and, and help people and so on. Father just wanted to teach. <laughs> he really didn't care if he made money. He didn't care who he taught, how he taught, where he taught. He just wanted to do it. Was he in the same area of Brazil as your... In Rio. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're, well, both of these, my grand, both my grandfather and his brother and father were both in Rio, yeah. And um, father used to teach jiu-jitsu classes in parks, in the favelas, in just any any place where he could roll around. Mm -hmm. And father did not look at jujitsu as my grandfather did, right, in the self-defense. He looked at it as, it's a fun game. I can submit this guy, they can submit me, it's a puzzle, it's a human chess. It's what we really like to do today. Mm -hmm. So, for him, leg locks were very much an option because it's a game. Right. If so, he didn't. He wasn't taking into account as much the kicks, hit punches. Right. Right. He wasn't looking at it as like a life or death because for him, he had enough knowledge that even if he got into a fight with some random person and he dropped and he dropped for like 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 he'd be fine. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's like like you you're pretty good with your legs and stuff, and you've been training for four years. If some rando comes to fight you, you could just drop to your, to your butt and attack a leg and probably come out ahead. Mm -hmm. Not the best tactic, but you could pull it off. Right. So that's how he thought. You know, he's like, against the random guy, 
doesn't matter. So his style of jujitsu is much closer to what a lot of like sport jujitsu is today. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So um, father um, continued to teach, and so there's basically there's two schools of thought going into how leg locks should be developed. One was looking at it as hey, it's a tool for the game. The other is okay, it is a viable tool for win- winning, but it's not the optimal strategy in a life or death scenario. Were there any other significant factions going on during this time? I'm sure there were, um, but regarding leg locks, no. Regarding yeah. leg locks, those, those are kind of the two, the two schools of thoughts, two factions, as you put it. So what happened there is, I don't know who started it. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't. At some point, somebody started calling father's guys urban jiu-jitsu, or in Portuguese, be like suburban jiu-jitsu, and basically like poor ghetto jiu-jitsu. Okay. Because they're training the park, they're training the favelas, they're somehow less than my grandfathers. And So did they saw that jiu-jitsu as kind of undisciplined and reckless? Dirty. Oh, okay. Cheap. Um, so there's some you snobbery know. going on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I don't know who started. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was the students. I don't know if there were family members. I don't know if there were if it was just the random way that the two factions saw each other, maybe father looked at my grandfather's style where they had a nice clean gym, structured class, regular hours, and said, those guys are snobs, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't know who started. But somehow there was that rift that happened at that time period. Do, do you know if Fada had a school? Uh, I'm, I'm sure he had something. I mean, he had to have some sort of building, right? But, some income of yeah. Kind, yeah. But uh, he was known for teaching in parks and just yeah. random places for the public, for yeah. different, just different people. Which is really cool. I mean, that's a... Yeah, I, I don't fault him. Yeah. You know, if I could teach you for free, I would. Mm. So, um, anyways, so at some point... Those two factions developed. Yeah, and then there's always a question of, okay, who is better? I don't know if it was my grandfather. I believe it was father. I think father issued a challenge. He said... I saw there was a statement that he released. I think it was in a newspaper. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was in a newspaper essentially saying... It was a nice call-out. said, like, we respect the Gracies as formidable opponents, but we're not afraid of them. Right. Bring it, bitches. That's pretty much, pretty much yeah. And and so they did, right? They did twenty students from one school against twenty schools of the other. Twenty students of the other school. Now, I, again, um, it's hard uh, to say what happened with. Well, I, I kind of know what happened a little bit, but before I dive into that, I'm going to do a little side tangent here. Um, have you ever heard of Miyamoto Musashi? It sounds very familiar. So he's like. Tons of quotes about him online. He's like this legendary samurai in Japan. Okay, yeah. Um, super interesting guy. I could do a whole episode on him. He's a fant- phenomenal, fantastic character. But um, his la- he used to do like duels to the death. I think he had like 68 or 78. Like, yeah, I've heard of Yeah, duels guy. to the death. And his last one was against another undefeated person. And the guy challenged him, and he's like, all right, you pick the place, and I'll pick the time. And the guy's like, oh, I want this place. And he's like, okay, I'll meet you at noon. And uh, the guy shows up, and it was by this river. And there's the whole village is there to watch this duel to the death between these two masters, right? So noon comes around, and Miyamoto is not there. So this guy is like, what the fuck? You know, like, where is he at? Like, mm-hmm. and And... Miyamoto's purposefully hours late 
to this encounter to where the sun was setting. And he came by boat via the lake. So the sun is behind him, right? They get there. He doesn't have a weapon. He uses his oar. And they're like, they're going to fight. So Miyamoto has the sun on his back, which means that the guy coming at him is blinded. Right. And Miyamoto kills him. <laughs> so, again, a lot of strategy goes into these things. All things right. that people don't usually think about, like... He kills him with an oar? Yeah. Just bludgeons him to death. Yeah, well, he broke the oar at first. There was a sharp end, and then he beat the fuck out of him with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but anyways, uh, there's a lot and of... And that was his last one? After that, he just... He, threw the broken oar on the guy and said, I'm done. No, he, he became a recluse and like a hermit and he wrote the book of five rings during his hermit period. And, uh, and he would like, he would come out and do summits like samurai summits years and years later. But he, he, what he would do after that point is if somebody challenged him, like if they wanted to take that mantle from him being the best samurai of his time, you know, the duels were always to the death. So what he would do is he would just maim them <laughs> until they gave up, like cut off a hand, cut off an arm, cut off a leg, you know, until the people gave up. <laughs> you could be the modern day version of that. I, I guess. You should. <laughs> you just will find you a house on a hill and people can come up and you can you can start to write like books and I mean, no one will read them, but you can just spout like right. crazy stuff. <laughs> and then when people come up to... Just say like hello. You can be a crazy like be a crazy guy and break a limb, and they're like, yeah. "Oh, I was just bringing you like a pie I baked." Right. I'm right. like, Miyoto. <laughs> be that crazy guy in the, <laughs> in the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll yeah. sit on it. Um, so, anyways, the the reason I'm bringing this up is there's a lot of strategy involved, and I don't know if Father did it while he was a, being aware of it, or if he took advantage of the situation in front of him. And my grandfather used the same mentality in other situations. And I'll go back to my grandfather in a second. But That's a good point because he was kind of using the strategy your grandfather used when like, or Carlos and him would use when issuing right. public challenges. Right. So my grandfather, when he used to challenge like other people is he would say that no man can defeat him. He never claimed to win. He just claimed that he wouldn't lose. Right, wow. which meant the tie was in his favor. Again, it's, it's strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So when Father challenged him, the rule was for a jiu-jitsu match between 20 of his students against 20 of Father's students. In a jiu-jitsu match, there are no strikes. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? Mm -hmm. So it plays into, it plays, it favors the Father's students at the time because that's what they were training for all the time right you know who cares if they drop to the back and miss the leg lock doesn't really matter right <laughs> so again i don't know if this was conscious strategy thinking of fathers or if it just worked out that way but the first meeting i believed i believed father took like 13 or 14 out of 20 he won 13 or 14 matches out of 20 wow. and i think it was mostly by leg locks um if somebody knows the exact numbers just go ahead and correct us but i think it was 13 or 14 matches um all by leg locks the ones that they won were all by leg locks right so you'd kind of touched on your grandfather at the time he would he would he was familiar with leg locks right. he'd do them but at that school, were they so focused on self-defense that they just did not really have the students well, go over like that? Well, their, their jiu-jitsu was for street fighting, yeah. right? So if you got into a fight today, 
what should you do? It was never like jump to guard. You know what I mean? It was never let's falter back and attack the legs. It was mm-hmm. never like, it was always, I need to be in a safe position so I don't get hit. How do I get there? How do I keep it? And if the opponent's stupid enough to, you know, leave something hanging, what can I take? Arms, necks, etc. Right. So it wasn't that they didn't know leg locks. They just, they just weren't used to them. Right. And they were, you know, the emphasis wasn't there. And you see this all the time in jiu-jitsu. You see, you look at jiu-jitsu guys, very good black belts go against like wrestlers in competition and the wrestlers get the takedown and then they get tapped. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the takedown goes to the wrestler because that's their emphasis, right? If you look at guys like Nikki Ryan, who, you know, Nikki, as far as I'm concerned, is a black belt when it comes to leg locks, but he's only a purple belt. But he's tapping out black belts everywhere because he puts them in this very specific part of the game that benefits him. And there he's a black belt and beats them. Yeah. Right? So Father essentially did that to my grandfather's students. It was brilliant. It was a brilliant move. Do you know if he if those guys pulled guard or if they just I, I don't know the yeah, details. No details of the fight. like that. No, but I do know that um, I can kind of tell you what happened based on the evolution of that meeting, right? So once that, that happened, they lost, and father went home, the victorious, right? The culture became that if I could not pass your guard, meaning I took you down, you got your guard, and I cannot pass it. I cannot find my arms closed, open, did not matter. If I somehow could not pass it, and I decided to go for a leg lock, that was cheating. Not not only was it cheating, it was cheap, and it meant that I was, um, my jiu-jitsu was so poor that I couldn't pass your guard. In a way you were submitting, saying I can't I can't beat you this so, way, so I'm just gonna have to. I'm gonna have that. to do this dirty, cheap, cheap thing to, to, to win. Mm-hmm. I have no choice, you beat me. It, it, like I said, you're, you're giving up, so to speak. So people that, so then it created a further rift of now, if you have no option, and the only thing left is leg lock, you're afraid to do it because you're not going to be shunned, shunned and shamed for doing those things. You were the dirty guy. Um, and that's where like the term sapatero comes from, which is like the shoemaker. Um, What's that term used for? Is that leg lock? It, yeah, basically like? somebody who does leg locks. It's like dirty. It's a dirty name. Do they still use that? In, Br- in oh, Portuguese? No, okay. no, it's not so a it is, anymore. It's yeah. just a, purely a slur for... Yeah, but at the time it was, right? And, and there's a tournament, actually. There's an organization that does Zapatero um, tournament matches where, like, they just use the name, mm-hmm. right? But anyways, it's yeah, it's a slur for, for dirty, cheap leg lockers. <laughs> hmm. And my guess is in the matches that, you know, that first meeting happened was those guys couldn't pass the guard so they attacked the leg locks coincidentally where the guys in the 50s and 60s while this was happening were ashamed for trying leg locks because it implied that they were not good enough to pass is the same thing that Donaher did in reverse where Donaher said fuck it let's try a leg lock right can't pass why can't I try a leg lock that's that's a, the, the stupid not to right mm-hmm. again different different time periods right, right. different different reasons for jujitsu so so they're the Gracies are defeated in this competition correct 
they go back, mm-hmm. go to the drawing board. What, what do they do from there? Well, basically, that's what it, where it came out to is obviously it's a, that's a weakness that needed to be addressed. It needed to be fixed. It needed to be, you know, remedied. And um, the, the emphasis on leg locks became, I think people practiced them more and they drilled them more and they became more aware but live rolling it was still shameful to use them were they learning about them purely for so their game would be a anti-leg lock game just to shut i think they were learning them just because again as the time as the years went on there's more competitions there's more schools Mm -hmm. there are more matches we have to address that because if this one suburban like they used to call them you know like these these like ghetto jujitsu guys can do this to us if this jujitsu keeps growing we need to address that right and and i think it became purely out of if we are to compete against these guys in um, in a match we have to at least be aware of them so the emphasis grew um i think it was still it wasn't so much frowned upon as it was shameful to do it. And people, that stigma carried on for a long time of, mm-hmm. if I go for a leg lock, I just can't pass your guard, you know? And um, kind of like when I'm rolling with people, if I can't get submissions or if I can't get past someone's guard, I just end up elbowing them in the nuts. Yeah. That, no, that's kind of my version. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Do you want me to teach you how I do it? Yeah. Yeah. Because you, you're pretty good at hitting it. People yeah. let go every time. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So that's, but guys, people say that, I don't think people say that's cheap though. When I do that, it's no, just a, it's I, just me adapting. Yeah. And, and surprised by it. 50 years from now, that may be the, guard the new guard pass. Yeah. Yeah. Just a elbow drop to the nuts. Hmm, I'm a pioneer in some ways. So I really, but all right. So they, they regroup, they start right. practicing and learning right. how to defend this, how to right. use leg right. locks. Right. And, and, you know, this is where we get into like the 60s and 70s. And there's an important thing that happens in the 60s and 70s. Actually, there's one major thing that happens in the 60s and 70s, and it's Holes Gracie and there's Jiu Jitsu, right? And we, we keep talking about how there's Jiu Jitsu before my grandfather, there's, and Carlos and my grandfather, and there's Jiu Jitsu before and after Holes, mm-hmm. and then so on and so forth. Um, Holes was a pioneer in many, many ways. You know, he was the first guy to question the system. Why do I have to fight only with my guard closed? Why can't I do wrestling? Why can't I do judo? Why can't I incorporate these things, right? And uh, um, Holes did a lot of sambo. He did a lot of wrestling. He did anything grappling. He did. He even competed in them. And in that, having that open mind, having that, desire to just incorporate everything that's grappling that's good grappling into jiu-jitsu led him to seek out different sources of knowledge and you know the introduction to sambo was very very big because sambo is very heavy uh, leg lock um, heavy um, lots of different entries to heel hooks toe holds knee bars um, some of the most vicious leg lock leg locks you can see are in, in combat sambo tournaments a lot of it's Stuff that would be illegal in a jiu-jitsu tournament, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but lots of leg locks, right? Um, you you get introduced to wrestling, for better or worse. There are leg twisting things in wrestling, right? You get into pancreas and shoot fighting. So basically, he's exposed the wealth of information 
And he starts to incorporate those into jujitsu as well. And you see influences in that in Marcy Stambowski, in the old Jacare, the head of Alliance, you know, um, Mauricio Gomez, uh, Jorge Gracie's dad, they all did leg locks because of Hulls Gracie influence. Because Hulls Gracie was, if I cannot do something to my opponent, it's stupid to keep trying the same thing. Therefore, I need to branch out, right? Not specifically with leg locks, but just everywhere. And then I think later in the 70s, um, early 80s, Hickson hooks up with Eric Paulson, learns leg locks from, from Paulson, or, or somehow comes along, comes into uh, knowledge from Eric Paulson for leg locks, and he adapts that into his, into his style. Holes was kind of the perfect guy to bring something like a leg lock into the fold, because if he hit a leg lock on someone, it's not that he couldn't pass them. He, he, right. he was good everywhere. And right. so you couldn't go, oh, you leg locked me. Weak, you just can't pass. Right. Is that why? Exactly. Or am I just smarter than you are? Right. Am I just that much better that I can do whatever I want? <laughs> right. Now, one thing, I don't want to jump again, but I also don't want us to miss. There is a rematch. Correct. That's what I was going to get back are we, to. We, we're, okay, yeah. we are going back. Yeah, so it was around that time period. I don't know exactly when the second rematch, the, the rematch took place. But yes, there was a rematch, right? Now, um, I know a little bit less even about the second rematch, only that I think that the, the wins were a little bit more even between the Gracie and father there. Um, I don't know if it was 10-10. I don't know if it was, you know, 9-11. But I know that it was close enough that now it was much more competitive, mm-hmm. right? Because of the awareness of it. Um, do, do, do you look up the, the rematch? Do you know the numbers? I, I did look it up. Well, cut this out while I look it up. So it sounds like I was super prepared. <laughs> yeah, I'm not finding it, but... Okay. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what the split was, but I know it was much closer. And it was even. Yeah. So after that, what was the relationship between the Gracies, your grandfather, Carlos? Um, you know, I think I think after this the this, the rematch where my grandfather essentially redeemed himself, right, via his students. I think that, I think the relationship was never. I don't think they ever hated each other. I think it was more. I think the the animosity, if there was ever animosity between them, even pre or post first match, first challenge, I think it was more created because of the students, I think they felt like they should, you know, like, oh, but they said this about us, you know, and, and, and they kind of got bought into it and, and, and all that. But I don't think they ever, I don't think they hated each other. I don't know this for sure, but. Well, it seems like a lot of times the, the newer guys, the students, the lower people are the hotter heads and right. the cooler heads will be the instructors. And everything I've seen from Fada and the Gracies or Helio usually was pretty positive. Like yeah. I, I saw, I had the quotes from after the fights, Helio complimented Fada and said, all you need is one Fada to show that jujitsu is not the Gracie's privilege. Right. And then Fada said something also that was very nice, just saying he, he didn't want to ever diminish the Gracie's. He just wanted to get rid of the myth that they were invincible and right. the only ones who, who could right. do jujitsu. Right. And, 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 you know, I think that you're right. I think it was mostly the students. You know, I, I there's pictures of them together, you know, throughout the years, you know, pre and post those matches where they were either teaching a class together or they were, they came together for somebody's ceremony. You know, if somebody's getting a, red, a black belt or a red belt, they would come together in honor, regardless of whose student it was. And, and, and I think that's, we should all take note of that. It's not about whose instructor is better or 
whose coach can kick whose coach's ass, but rather it's the growth of the art. You know, really, those two guys may have had students go against each other and and, and, and see the weaknesses in their game and try to fix it, but really the whole point was how can we grow, mm-hmm. you know, based on this. It was basically, a, it was the research. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it's a nice message. Although it's ironic coming from you since you're the guy who's out there put on this 30-day challenge to I other black belts this around the challenge. country. The world. <laughs> oh, it's the world now. Oh, goddamn. Well, I mean, we have global <laughs> listeners. So I understand what you're saying. It is nice to see those guys getting along and saying, let's not fight. But... I just think you should look at yourself, look, kind of reflect oh, on yourself. Okay, on and myself. Say, maybe right. don't be so aggressive towards these so other gym. I, I need to. We need, I need to go back and listen to the episodes and find out exactly where I said this because I, I don't think I said it. Mm. You know, but 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 maybe I'm confused. Yeah, I'm gonna have some editing <laughs> to do after this episode on yeah. the first couple, but we we finish up the conclusion to those guys right. and ends on good terms. A lot is learned. Right. Fada is an interesting guy because I never knew anything about him until sometime a while back. I heard a mention and then I asked you and you kind of gave me the story that you just told. And so I looked into him and it's just another branch of jujitsu that was another style. And it helps complement the other Gracie style jujitsu. Right. So then, you know, you fast forward a little bit more. So now we're in the 70s, 80s, uh, Holes and Hickson and, and the introduction of guys like Eric Paulson and others who are, who are good, like lock guys, um, from catch, catch, catch a sketch can, um, and, and Sambo and Pancras and all those guys do like lots of like, like heavy submissions. When we get to the eighties, we get the introduction of like federation, like the beginnings of the Jiu-Jitsu federation for tournaments and how point scoring is going to go and how tournaments should be held. And the, the, this is like, the ancestor to IBJJF, right? And um, it's funny because the way that the point system was developed, and I don't know that a lot of people are truly aware of it, the point system was developed based on a optimal fight strategy. Hmm. Okay. So meaning what? I mean, if you and I were to get into a fight, right, the optimal strategy for me would be to take you down to pass your guard, to achieve mount or back, and then to either punch you to death or submit you, right? And in with that in mind, the progression of points makes sense. Taking you down is the least important thing because for us, the threat wasn't on our feet. The threat was in the ground. So once I took you down, it's two points, right? If I started to pass your guard, Guard would be the most dangerous thing you could do to me if you're on your back. So passing that awards me more points than a takedown. So now I'm at three points. Now, can I keep that? Am I good enough to maintain that position? So if I went to top mount or to the back, that is the most dominant position. I get awarded more points. And, of course, the submission trumps trumps the whole thing, right? So with that in mind, then you get into the points system. You know, So what about the guy in the bottom? But if he falls, you know, how can he sweep well? If he gets on top, if he goes from the bottom to the top, it's essentially the same thing as a takedown. Two points, right? If he mounts, still four. If he takes the back, so four. Anyway, so, so the point system was developed that way. You know, Belly at the time was just a show off. You're so dominant that you can show off how dominant you are. So that's another two, you know. 
Um, and the reason why that that's important is because because of the rule system being put into place in an optimal based on optimal strategy for winning a fight leg locks go back to being undesirable Mm. right if you go to the top if you're on top you end up in the bottom the guy stands up it's two points for him you know you're back to bottom it's undesirable to see so then so then leg locks go back to not being you're just naturally discouraged by the rules by to the, not go correct. take that risk. Right, 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 right. And um, not only that, because now there's going back, we go back to the same stigma. We feed into the stigma of leg locks are, are shameful or bad or a no-no. Um, they're not as they're not practiced. So the level of understanding drops again. And that drop of understanding causes people that when they do try it, they overcompensate for their lack of knowledge. And that's where you see like lots of leg injuries. They're going above and beyond and and there should be no need. I mean, we've done tons of leg locks in the school. You don't need a lot of pressure to to break a leg. No. But in tournaments, especially back in the day, you see people, you know, straining so hard and yanking so hard just because they weren't quite sure how to do it. It was something kind of like this and they just buffered it. The point system that you mentioned developing in the 80s mm-hmm. was based on um, kind of replicating a fight. What were the competitions? How were they scored before that? They weren't. It was submission only? Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's why some of those matches would go on forever. Even for kids and like the am- when you see or, like Hoist and those pe- people competing when they're just small kids, were those submission only also? Mm-hmm. Oh. Or exhaustion, or fatigue, or the coach throws in the towel. You know, there's matches of people going half an hour, hour, hour and a half, you know, into those matches. It's Man, and we think that competitions are long nowadays. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so anyways, so now you have the... people, people are overcompensating. The people that are trying leg locks, they're doing with less understanding and less access to that knowledge. They're trying to get an edge on an opponent, so they're kind of imitating what they see or what they think they see and they're just adding physical power to it right which causes an issue to arise now that we have less understanding and we're overcompensating on the power injuries go through the roof right imagine if i didn't explain to you an arm like what an arm bar was uh i mean you've drilled arm bar with white belts mm. they hit they hip in the hardest they're, they fall back hard and then they right. just hip in like their life depended it's on because they don't have their understanding of hey you don't need all that mm-hmm. if you do everything right it's just a little bump imagine that with leg locks at all levels and like you said <laughs> leg locks require a lot of leg locks require such a smaller motion than an arm bar or a kimura so you have this reason that leg locks weren't used for so long and then they start to, in the 70s and 80s, come back, they get some use, but you have people applying them without as much knowledge, but a ton of aggression, so there are a lot of injuries. Correct. So then, does that cause the negative view people have from like the 90s and to early like to the 2000s right. where, well, leg locks are just dangerous, you shouldn't do Right. Them. So basically, it goes back into this thing now where the instructors have to really strongly consider, is it worth teaching any leg locks to my students because while they may give them a slight edge in competition, they're hurting each other. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I need to make money. And I don't even know kind of what I'm doing anyways. Right. So maybe if I just skip it, 
less people in my school get hurt. I make more money. Life is good. And then that the, those three stigmas, right? The, it's, you know, cheap, it's ghetto, it's dirty, it's dangerous, it's, you know, less beneficial in the rule setting. All keeps feeding, it keeps rotating through all the way through the 90s, you know, all the way up until like the 2000s, really. Until, you know, um, guys like Frank Mir and then Dean Lister um, and others, you know, come into the scene and start winning. Um, uh, what's his name? Man, the art of crippling. Imanari and others, you know, uh, Shinyoki, and they start coming in and start doing leg locks, they start winning, and people are like, well, we need to do something about this. Then Donahue enters the scene and popularizes leg locks via his students, right? Now, um, when we talk about leg locks and Donahue, the same belief system, right, that either they're too dangerous or that they don't work was applied in the beginnings of the of Donahue's students. You see guys like Eddie Cummings, Gary Tonin, um, even before um, Gordon Ryan, they were breaking people's legs left and right, both because the person defending thought it's not going to work, right? It, you know, it's just not going to happen. Or that they thought that they knew what leg, proper leg locks were and tried escaping it, and they, they couldn't. So a lot of the injuries, if you go back and look at footage from the from the Danners guys, especially the early on, early 2000s, they they weren't cranking very hard. I mean, I'm sure they were playing a lot of pressure, but the breaks always happened when the guy being attacked tried to escape. He would rotate the wrong way and <laughs> tear his own knee apart. So, um, yeah, it, it kind of it's not a full circle. People are now forced to admit that leg locks are an efficient form of fighting because they work. I mean, you know, you have guys doing it at all levels winning. You have guys in UFC doing it and winning. You know, and, and as far as a controlled environment, absolutely is a great way to go. In this fight, maybe not in a street fight, maybe not the optimal place to go. Right. Let's stop here because I we haven't even gotten to talking about actual leg locks. Right, right. We've talked about the history and their evolution, and I easily think we could get another podcast out of it. Oh, absolutely. So we'll do this as a two-part series, maybe a three-part, if it if yeah. it goes, yeah. if you know that much. Um, <laughs> not to challenge you to oh, try to, damn. to I mean, fill up we, next We still have to talk about like the growth in Sambo and in Pancreas, because it's just different parts of the world. They're all doing the same kind of thing. That's true. Okay, now you're just showing off. <laughs> Um, the, that, that, that'll be it for this one We're, we'll do a two-parter and come back and talk about Sambo and all the other stuff that uh, that is racking around in Croyler's brain to end this episode do you have anything you've prepared again? I mean any <laughs> I know it's getting old to you but a lot of people are just waiting with bated breath every time we get to the end of an episode going, this could be the day. Did I see you bring a guitar in? You came in oh, with a big God, case. No. no, that's no, not a guitar? that's not a guitar. Hmm. Must be just be a body in that case. Pretty it's much. weird. I'm just leaving it here. Okay. Well, I prepared a song. Oh, well, go ahead and sing no, it for I us. <laughs> I need to come up with a jingle. 
jingle. Yeah, jingles Jesus aren't Christ. used as much anymore. <laughs> but we need a good jingle for just jujitsu. That's just a quick like three, like five second saying. You know, like 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 a McDonald's. Like, have you had your break today? That's an old one, but. I don't know that one. You, you haven't heard that one? No. <laughs> uh, did somebody say McDonald's? Have you heard that one? No. No? I'm sorry about that. I'm not. <laughs> I only know McDonald's jingles, apparently. Clearly. Because uh, you pulled two out of the... <laughs> two out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of it anymore. All right. That's uh, that's a good way to end it. We came full circle. Yeah. I did we, we did. start off talking about McDonald's jingles? That's what I remember. No. Okay. All right. Well, th- maybe this is not a full circle, but we're going to end it anyways. Thank you, and... Goodbye.